Welcome to Line Noise, a podcast about electronic music. I'm Philip Sherburn. And I'm Ben Cardew. And uh, I have a question for you, if I may. All right. IDM, 2017. Mm-hmm. Is it in better health than it's ever been? Or is it dead? Let me let me explain that. But let me explain that before Can I... Can we get a third option? Well, no. <laughs> third options. We live in a in a time of extremes. Why I say this? Why? Because this summer, Aphex Twin is playing loads of live dates as a plaid, as a square pusher. Uh, Aphex Twin keeps on releasing new music. There was uh, a new Autica album last year. They toured last year. Um, there's going to be... Uh, Electrosoma 2 from B12, apparently coming out this year. Basically, the, the, the classic acts of IDM, with maybe the exception of Boards of Canada, but who knows what they're up to, um, are still there, still mm-hmm. playing to massive audiences, still releasing albums that are having a big impact. Why is it dead? Because who makes IDM these days? Well, all of the people you just mentioned. New artists. And, and I think, as we'll see in this program, I, I think um, I think you can argue that the idea of, or the sounds of IDM, if not the idea, and maybe we'll get into what the idea is or isn't or was or might be later. Um, I think the sounds are back uh, in a number of contexts. Um, you and I were just talking about an artist, PTU, I believe, on Nina Kravitz's trip label. Yes, Certainly an, an IDM influence there. Um, Nina Kravitz has been playing a ton of, um, uh, well, Bjarki has a, has, a, has a heavy IDM influence. Nina Kravitz's mix CDs tend to be heavy on kind of reflex and classic sort of brain dance, things like that. Um, what was I just listening to today? Ah, I just got an amazing new um, tape by Koten, K-H-O-T-I-N, right. who's an artist from Vancouver, British Columbia, um, out of the sort of 1080p stable. And this Coton uh, album tape, whatever, I didn't actually get the tape. I got a download. But it's mostly ambient. But then the last couple tracks are very, very, very much in a reflex Apollo sort of vein, like break beats and kind of broken machine beats and super like reflex 1993. So, yeah, there's a lot of people still making this sound. So what what is IDM? I mean, it's one of those, it's, it's a very difficult, term i mean obviously intelligent it's dance the music. worst term oh there's a lot of bad terms but yeah that is a that it is a terrible 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 term but people know what you mean so i'm gonna go on record here as kind of an apologist for the term idm and intelligent dance music or not an apologist because i think it's a dumb term um but i don't like there's always been and with good reason people have always gotten upset by this term saying intelligent dance music is offensive because it implies that regular dance music is not intelligent. Yes. Which, totally true. However, I think if you look at the etymology of the term, and it comes, there's sort of an, there's a way around that. And at least this is how I've always made peace with the term myself. So Warp put out the artificial intelligence compilation in, I want to say 93? 92. Maybe 92. Uh, there were two volumes of it, if I'm not mistaken. Super early on in Warp Records history, gatefold albums. These were albums that sort of helped introduce the idea of electronic listening music at a time when, you know, electronic music was really geared toward clubbing and, and raves and, and whatnot. So artificial intelligence, 
Um, I always thought of the name intelligent dance music as an offshoot of the artificial intelligence compilations. And as far as I know, the name traces back to um, the list, the, the, the listserv on the Hyperreal servers, which I was a member of from, I think, 1995 onwards. Um, the list was founded, I think, in 93 or 94. Um, but I always thought of it as like you had the artificial intelligence compilations, which then you had intelligent dance music, which to me was the idea of when I thought of intelligent dance music, it wasn't dance music that was more intelligent than something else. It was dance music that had an intelligence. It was dance music. Right. Think it was sentient, sentient dance music. It was music that had like a brain. You know what I mean? It was almost generative. It, it had a, it was autonomous. It was this idea of like music that was creating itself. That's what I always, that's what the, the name always sort of evoked for me. For me, it was sort of dance music that wasn't um, necessarily intended for the dance floor. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can dance to it. I have. Sure, done. sure. But um, it's, um, people are making it not necessarily thinking of that thinking of maybe uh, home listening um, and that was actually something they said on the artificial intelligence compilation right big bold letters yeah. on the start it's electronic listening music which I think was a great definition so I guess maybe that's also where the intelligent came in because it was like oh it's for the brain it's not for the the feet you know I mean it's this this sort of old old dichotomy of the you know the head and the feet or what have you but I mean yeah it's a dumb term but somehow it's stuck um, and I think it's interesting that it's stuck largely through a mailing list I mean does anybody even belong to mailing lists anymore? I think when you think about it, looking back, what what a strange kind of quirk of culture, you know? Like, why do you think it's stuck? It's a really good question. I th I guess because it, I mean, it, it it was a sound and it was an idea and it was in a way a genre that didn't that nobody came up with a better name for. I mean. Sorry, Aphex, but brain dance is even worse than IDM. <laughs> I, I don't want to listen to brain dance. Brain dance is the worst term I've ever heard in my life. Brain dance is a terrible term, yeah. <laughs> and, I, you know, what I remember back in the early 90s, people talked about abstract music and abstract beats. Artronica? Did people talk about that? Artronica? Yeah. That, yeah. No. No. I swear someone I did. Mean, I, yeah. I mean, they probably <laughs> did. I never heard that. Intella. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... I think it's stuck because, you know, there was sort of a vacuum there and and IDM filled that vacuum. I mean, the, the IDM is one of those things you can't really define, but you can, um, you recognize it when you hear it. And this is certainly something we ran up against when we, so it, for Pitchfork, we did an IDM list, the 50 best IDM albums, uh, not too long ago. January, wasn't it? Ja uh, yeah. I guess it was January. And um, yeah, we ran up against this question of what, is IDM and I know you know we had some inclusions there that some people were definitely not happy about that they felt like they were not textbook IDM enough um, we we kind of argued in favor of an inclusive definition um, in part because we didn't want it and I'm just speaking for myself here I'm not speaking sort of on behalf of my employer uh, but we, you know we wanted to have it reflect a broad scope of music and not just like white British dudes, white Anglo-American dudes from like 1991 to 1996 because that kind of would have been a boring list. And so we we made it kind of, we tried to think of the idea of IDM as 
what are the sonic characteristics? You know, and these sort of fractured beats, broken beats, um, certain kind of digital manipulations. I mean, we can get into that, um, sort of the signatures of IDM. Uh, well, that's something I wanted to ask because um, doing this list, I ended up uh, listening to a lot of the sort of classic IDM albums. And when you actually think about it, what unites Autica with Square Pusher? You know, they're, they're, they're wildly different acts. I mean, you've got Square Pusher doing these mangled, ferocious breaks, and you've got Autica doing sort of weird machine music. I mean, what, what unites them? Well, I think it's the intricacy of the sound, isn't it? It's the complexity of it. I mean, both of them are rhythmically incredibly complex. These are not four-to-the-floor beats. I mean, that was one thing. Kind of anything with much of a four-to-the-floor beat immediately got thrown out for consideration for the pitchfork list. Um, I think maybe the, the exceptions would be... Um, Drexia? Drexia, although they... I mean, really, for my money, Drexia is way more electro than IDM. Yeah. But Drexia also... I mean, th- I included some things that, that got discussed on the IDM list back in the day um, because I, I spent like many, many, many years on the IDM list, and that helped color to me what was IDM. Um, and Drexia was a big deal then. I mean, we, we talked a lot about Electro back in the day. Um, and Electro, IDM shares a lot with Electro and that it took, if Electro is a syncopated p- beat pattern, you know, Electro is never a four-to-the-floor beat, really. Electro is a, a, a swung beat, and, and IDM took a ton of that from from electro and i think in part because people like autecker grew up on on electro and an electro bass and they were b-boys album that quite confused me um which uh didn't make it into the the top 50 um was fuses dimension intrusion Mm -hmm. um because that was one of the original artificial intelligence albums um released by warp which almost for me by definition makes it makes it idm but it's kind of a techno album i didn't know what what to do about it it's a great album. fuse Abs- richie hot yeah we're talking yeah it's about. an absolutely yeah. great album but so why um why would that be idm and mm. not plastic man plastic man sheet one right. for example did did plastic man end up on the list no i don't know and i mean you know back in the this is the this is the i guess the beauty and the terror of the the term idm and it, and it was this way always i mean i remember arguments on the idm list is this IDM or is it not IDM? And you know who who really ultimately knows? Apex Twin. Apex Twin. <laughs> well, let's just ring him up. <laughs> um, but you know, you could certainly consider a lot of the early Plastic Band records IDM at the same time that they're also techno and they're also acid. Um, you know, which I guess I I remember I voted for Urban Tribe and I felt pretty strongly that Urban Tribe belonged um, on the list, even though they don't sound like textbook IDM. They don't sound like. Autecker or Square Pusher or Aphex Twin. Um, very, I mean, it's Detroit Beatdown essentially is these kind of like slow, 
hip hop beats, but still when you get into the kind of the, the textures and the sorts of synthesizers they're using. And I mean, there's, there, there's a, to me, there's a linkage to IDM culture. Um, I know people were angry that the list didn't have like Dark Angelo and um, I don't, I, I don't know if like um, DMX crew made it on the list finally. And there were a lot of kind of canonical reflex and warp artists from the early nineties that, that didn't make the final cut. I think part of the problem there also is that, a lot of that stuff has gone out of print and it's, well, it's, it's all gone out of print, but it's not available for streaming outside of YouTube. And a lot of, uh, a lot of younger listeners don't know a lot of that music anymore. I mean, it's kind of been lost to, to history in a way. What releases were the, were the, were you sad not to see on there? Should we say, were there any that, that kind of killed you that they didn't, they didn't make it? Um, I mean, I, I need to go back and actually remember what, what made it on there and what didn't make it on there. But for me, I was a huge fan of, um, and, and this is another one that wasn't necessarily textbook, but Yoni's My Little Yoni. Mm-hmm. Um, Yoni were um, Thomas Melchior and Tim Hutton, who then went on to be known as Volva on Reflex. They right. did two albums as Volva, and Yoni came out on David Mufang, Move D's source label. Um, and it was one of my very first electronic albums, and so I feel very partial to it. And it's it's like intelligent techno. It's like four to the floor ish beats, but but very intricate and um, just really interesting textures and timbres. And um, yeah, just for totally sentimental reasons, I would like to have seen that. That would have been like a top ten for me. But of course, nobody else even remembers that record. Nobody knows it. I see. I was shocked. Not quite to my very core, but well, maybe surprised is a better word. Um, that two albums didn't make it. One of which was Global Communications seventy six fourteen, and the other of which was B 12s Electrosoma. Yeah, me, I mean the B twelve. That's a that's an oversight. I, that that's weird not to see. There uh, for, for various reasons. I was looking at the B twelve Facebook uh, today, and there were people very unhappy. I'm about sure. That. Yeah, I mean there's textbook idea. You know the first wave kind of as as OG as you get. Yeah. But with global communications, like I would argue that's an ambient record. But it, see, it wasn't on the ambient list. It wasn't. It wasn't. Well, I, I wasn't part of that, but it wasn't in the top 50. I'm going to go out, I mean, not to be provocative, but ha, do you, has it aged well? Oh, yes. Have you not listened recently? See, I feel like I've listened, I, I've listened not too long ago when I feel like it maybe hadn't aged as well as I hoped it might. I thought it was as good as I remembered. I absolutely loved it. I loved it at the time. Um, I still do. I've been listening to them um, quite a lot recently because I rediscovered their um, Chapter House remix album, Blood Music. Well, okay. their pen- Pentamorous men- Metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that took me right back to 7640. It's such a good album. Such a good album. I mean, for me, that's top five. I'll have to, I'll have to revisit. Um one album I, I I would love to have seen on there is Vibert Simmons um, Weirs, uh, Luke Vibert, and I actually don't remember Simmons' first name, but um, it came out on Reflex in 1993, and it's super weird. Again, this was one of my really f- very first electronic albums, and so it made a, a a very kind of personal impact. But it's it's my favorite Luke Vibert thing by by a mile. It's it's really just sounds like heavy machine jamming. It's super weird. There's like 18 minute tracks on there. It's really dissonant and strange. And um, it's yeah, it's as far out. Uh, it's as far out as IDM gets, and and I would like to have seen that on there. 
something else. I, I wish we'd had something from Irdial on there, like InSync or Anthony Manning or Beauty On. I mean, that was a, a UK label around the time as Reflex that was really that was really fundamental. But again, their stuff has gone out of print. It's not streamable. Uh, not entirely true. You can get it for a lot of it from um, what is it? The Internet Archive. Um, there's like an Internet Archive, and there's a lot of free media there and you can get a lot of their stuff from that although a lot of it's also only 192 quality which is frustrating but it's there it's just you know you have to know to go to go look for it um i would love to see a a a dedicated reissue campaign for a lot of a lot of old um a lot of old idm there's some kenishi 12 inches that came out on rns apollo that that don't exist i can't even find them on youtube and uh, you know they're they're fantastic i'd love to hear them again there was a great sweet exorcist album on touch that's out of print yeah what about um one one um suggestion um of yours actually was carl craig's more songs about food and revolutionary art why is that idm for you because for me it's maybe this is this is me being s- close-minded and i love carl craig i love that album but for me pretty much anything carl craig does by definition is is techno just cuz he's carl craig you know yeah i mean that's one of those that's one of those kind of gray area border cases i mean he is he's he's as sort of definitive detroit techno as you get in the same way that drexia are definitive electro but i think that album also um, that album has such an array of tempos and beat structures i mean it's not it's not all kind of 120 to 128, four to the floor. Um, techno, and to me, that that kind of opens it up to the broader idea of IDM, which is electronic listening music, which is kind of experimental techno, which is things outside of the kind of the narrowest definition. It's it's totally up for debate. I mean, I'd say it's it's techno first, Detroit techno first, IDM second, but also I just wanted to see it on the list. Well, exactly. What about Jay Lynn? Where do you stand her? Friend of the podcast, Jay Lynn. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought it was great to see Jay Lynn in there because she's somebody who's taking the, let's say, the original idea, which is incredibly convoluted beat structures and pushing yeah. them into, you know, new decades, new forms, new genres. I thought it was very telling that when Aphex Twin um, did his set um, at Night and Day, is that the name mm-hmm. of the festival? That he played a lot of Jaylin because suddenly it made sense. It's like, of course, yeah. yeah, because there's something quite Aphexy about mm-hmm. uh, what she does. Not not that it sounds like him, but just in the way that she is so clever with rhythms, um, the way she kind of mangles rhythms to her own um, ends. That's quite Aphexy, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's vindicating for the list, but also, I mean, it makes a lot of sense because you look at, I mean, the popularization of footwork outside of Chicago really largely comes down to, to Planet Mew and the Banks of Works comps and them, you know, signing and, and promoting all of these Chicago footwork artists. Um, and so, so you've got this indirect line, but nonetheless, I mean, from, you know, Planet Mew is an IDM label in its roots and its history. Yeah. They they aren't restrained. They they do more than IDM, but um, you know it it is a direct line between IDM and footwork in that sense. I mean, I think when it comes down to it, IDM a it's in the eye of the beholder. B to me, it the name if it, the the term if it means anything, it is a certain off kilter sensibility. It is an additional layer of nuance and complexity that you don't get in 
straight ahead club music. We had an email a while ago um, from uh, a listener, and uh, I wanted to ask about this. It's Michael Sutton, um, and uh, he actually emails after we'd, we'd sort of wrapped up 2016. But he he said um, a highlight of the year for his for him was seeing B12 perform Electro Somar live in London in uh, early October 2016. This was a truly wonderful experience, and I just wanted to get your opinion on the matter. Is this something you're a fan of, i.e. Samuel Electronic Acts performing their wel- most well-known work for fans in the present day? Where do you stand on it? Um, I mean, I guess it depends how they were going to do it, right? I mean, this has been a big thing for a number of years now, no? Like yeah, bands for rock acts, out you know. There. Exactly, like legacy bands performing their big album or whatever. Um, I can't think of anybody that I'm really a fan of that's done this. I came up with, um, other than B12, I came up with two examples, um, which was Craftwork did all of their albums. They did that run um, uh, right, right. in London. I think they've done it in New York as well, at, at museums, basically doing all their albums. And Underworld uh, did Dubner Bass with My Headman uh, live Did as you well. see any of those? I saw the Underworld one, yes. And how was that? Interesting. <laughs> I mean, I love Underworld, and I've seen Underworld many a time. Um, but the thing about Underworld Live is they're always meant to be based on improvisation, and some of they play these. This tells them playing like twenty-hour sets, you know, because they're just improvising. Um, and so, playing a classic album live doesn't sort of well. It's kind of the opposite of that, isn't it? You know. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it because I really enjoyed dub my bass with my headman. It's one of my favorite. Electronic albums. I loved it when I was uh, younger, we shall say. Um, <laughs> but there was something. I, it just seemed a little bit weird because if you're if you're playing the classic album, you you don't mess around with it that much, right? But then if you're not messing around with it that much, that means that you're essentially just kind of dumping it into Ableton Live. I mean, the the question is like, what are you actually doing, right? I mean, what are you actually playing? So one thing that really brought this back to me was when I saw Underworld playing dub no haste, dub note bass with my headman live, um, was that uh, I later found out that um, in fact Rick Smith, who's you know the person from Underworld that mans the keyboards and mm-hmm. computers and that kind of thing, was ill, and um, so the person who was actually performing with them on that night, which was at with, um, Primavera in Barcelona, was Darren Price, who's not a member of the band, but has, you know, toured with them many on many occasions. So it was kind of strange. It was like, okay, so all of the music is being played by someone else who wasn't in the band at the time. And obviously that was later, so it didn't affect my enjoyment, but it kind of affected the way in which I saw it later. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately it comes down to like, what was he actually playing? You know, I mean, the thing is, I largely like electronic music as a studio-based thing. And when you have live electronic music, there are, there are certainly artists that do it 
they do interesting things with it. Uh, Juju and Jordash, for instance, you know, they're a live electronic improv duo and they go up on stage kind of with a blank slate and they make everything up on the spot. That's not the only way to do it, but that's one way to do it. But um, when you're replaying a classic album, unless you're up there sort of with a bank of synthesizers and, you know, you've got your sequencers programmed and everything, but you're sort of triggering, I don't know, you. it's so easy to just dump everything into Ableton Live and essentially hit a space bar and let it play back the, the album for you. I think, and and you know, maybe that's maybe that's legitimate. If it sounds good, um, you know, I've seen Stockhausen give a performance here in Barcelona that was it was a tape performance. There's literally nothing being done. I think he was tweaking EQs a little bit. The idea was to be in an auditorium listening to Stockhausen's music, and that was that was fantastic. It had nothing to do with virtuosity, but I guess it's knowing what you've signed up for in a sense. I mean, I think um, there are enough classic electronic music albums i think there's absolutely loads i mean this is going back to, to idm one thing um that kind of almost surprised me was just how many brilliant idm albums there have been and i suppose that's probably more album oriented than other kinds of electronic music but there are loads of classic electronic music albums so there's enough people who could do this but i don't know i just don't see them being see there being much appetite for it no <laughs> I mean, I'd love to see. A, yeah, it, the problem ultimately it's a it's a studio thing. It's you know these are often you know tr an album can be made with x number of different machines. It's just it's a. I I remember when I first saw Aphex Twin live, and this was I've talked about this before. This was 1993 or something like that, and um, I was a massive fan of his. He was playing. Um, this mega dog tour in Norwich, and he was playing. I remember, you know, you couldn't really see him, but you could obviously hear the music, and it was tremendously weird and and sort of brilliant. And then there came over the the sound system this very faithful reproduction of one of my favourite tracks from Selected Ambient Works, and I remember that I assumed that that must be a DJ put it on because <laughs> it didn't sound like what he was doing before, and it sounded so much like the recorded version i thought oh right okay well apex twin is finished <laughs> and um then the next thing that he put on was something really weird and and twisting i was like oh okay so he hasn't finished and it was almost like oh i just heard my favorite song live and i didn't even realize it yeah, you know yeah, it, was, yeah. it was a strange uh strange time i mean electronic music to me is so much like the the visual arts the plastic arts it's it's um it's not time-based in a sense, you know, it's, I mean, a, a three-minute track might take months to, 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 to construct, you know, and ultimately the idea of how do you present that quote-unquote live in performances, yeah, this, it's an open question, it's, you know, nobody's ever figured out these answers and every artist kind of has, has their own approach to it, but to me as a listener and as a, and as a, as an attendee of events, it's not something that I'm super interested in. I'd, I'd rather stay home with my records. One thing, though, interesting, Craftwork. Um, do you remember a few years ago they surfaced a video that someone had very sneakily taken? Craftwork were playing someone with a with a balcony, and some, some sneaky person got behind and took a really good video of what they were actually doing. 
and it was quite incredible that they were actually playing it live. You know, when there was a huh. melody, somebody actually was tapping yeah, it out yeah. on, on, on this keyboard, which I was quite impressed with. Somebody that does live electronic music in a very interesting way is Adam Hart, Uva Schmidt. Right. Um, and his Adam TM performances, he gets up there, and I know, I honestly have no idea what he's playing, but he's got a little controller box. And at least a series of shows I saw a few years ago, he was showing there was this kind of green code on the wall behind him that sort right. of showed the different parameters. I mean, I'm just assuming this was all actually, you know, there's a certain, there's a cause effect relationship. You see a parameter, you hear a sound change at the same time that parameter changes and you assume yeah. that this is all, you know, happening live, that there's a, that his finger touches something and the sound changes. You assume that these are kind of necessary uh, or related incidences but anyway he he does a great a great show that's really based on that idea of cause and effect and it, to the best of my knowledge he's actually playing live do you know the one thing i can't stand is when people get a drummer a physical drummer to play something that's been played on a on a drum machine it just really annoys me because it's like, well what's the point that was played in a drum machine with that sort of drum machine perfection you're getting someone to sort of try to create it in a way that's not very good i remember when the field who i love started he started playing with like a full band this was year this was like a decade ago now and so you know he had made all his music just on a computer it was all based on basically just like loops and right. drum machines and all of a sudden it was him and a drummer and one other person like a bassist or a guitarist or something maybe a keyboardist i don't know and it was so bad because the drummer <laughs> wow. was so out of time <laughs> with the music itself. And it was really excruciating. It was like the drummer. And then because I think he maybe had like the kick drum on the computer. But then there was also the drummer. And it was just you, that's really tough to pull off as a, right. a live drummer and a computer and a drum machine at the same time. And I think maybe the monitoring was poor. And Oof. so y you had the sense that like maybe the drummer wasn't there was like a lag in his monitors and it was excruciating. I remember that was a real kind of low point for live electronic performance. <laughs> Nothing against the field. I no, love the field, the field right. but this particular iteration of his live show wasn't working. Uh, if it's any help, I saw him live uh, in 2007, and he had a band, and he was great. So right. there we go. Yay, the field redeemed. Um, one one question. I'm going to spring it on you. It just occurred to me. Um, we were talking about Kraftwerk playing their classic albums. Which... Let's say you're allowed to go to see Crawford play one album. Which one would it be? Uh, Man Machine. Man Machine. Fair enough. You? <sighs> I've spent so much time thinking about this. When I don't have other <laughs> times to think about. Because um, Computer World is probably my favourite. But what you've got to take in consideration is if you go to see Crawford some other time, they're going to play lots of Computer World. But how much of Electric Cafe will they play? Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, um, yeah. And I love Electric Cafe in a very strange way. <laughs> so, probably Computer World, but maybe Electric Cafe. All right, all right. Ben, what recommendations do you have for us this week? So I want to recommend, um, it's the first song on the new album from Perk. The album is called Bitter Music, and the first song is called Exit. And I was listening to this um, as you do, slightly distracted fashion, you know how you are sometimes, um, maybe doing some other things. And it's one of those where you, you start to think, like, 
did I actually hear that? Have I got another tab open? You know, um, because this song, which is like a really nice bit of sort of actually quite Kraftworkian um, electronics, features David Cameron's post-Brexit resignation speech. And I was like, am I hearing this? And I was like, oh, yes, I am. And then you notice the song's called Exit. And uh, the second song on the album is called Unelected. And, of course, the uh, Prime Minister that followed David Cameron, Theresa May, is unelected. We didn't vote for her. Um, and it got me thinking... I mean, don't get me wrong, this is a really good album, really good piece of, really good piece of music. Um, but there haven't been many reactions to sort of Brexit among British musicians. I mean, particularly among British electronic musicians. How long has it been now? Seven, eight months, something like that. Yeah, so maybe maybe we're at sort of the beginning of the, you know, that's kind of how long it takes for an idea to come to gestation, and the, the minimum, you know? I think so. I think it'll be very interesting to see if we get more if we get more things. I mean, actually, one of the, the first things that I saw was actually on Perk's label, mm. Perk Tracks. There's an artist called Manny D, um, who did a fabulously named EP, Throbs of Discontentment. Yeah. And the opening track is called London Isn't England, which um, basically because London uh, didn't vote for Brexit and Mm -hmm. the rest of England did and there's lots of disconnect anyway, that kind of thing. Um, And it got me thinking, can techno, can electronic music be effective in a political manner? Um, I mean, what... Because this this Perk track, Exit, is very, very subtle. I mean... You know, as I said, I, di- I didn't even quite notice what was going on for a while. And and the second track, Unelected, you know, there's, there's no vocal on it. It's, no, it's not sort of saying anything explicit. But what what effect can it have? I mean, where, where do you stand on that? Well, I guess the question is what, how do you define effective? You know, what is, I mean, this is obviously a huge question. Is kind of what is the role of, of art in politics or what is the relationship between the two? I mean, we've seen, there are, some examples of electronic music that have, that has engaged that has engaged with politics in a direct manner. Um, I'm thinking like the classic example is Autechre's anti EP, which yes. was you know this. Or but that's not even that's not engaging in politics in a direct manner. That's essentially a sort of sardan, sardonic commentary on the absurdity absurdity of the criminal justice bill. Um, which you need to have explained to you. I mean, you couldn't just hear it and you'd be like, ah, that's talking about... No, exactly. That's why there was a sticker on the thing saying this contains no repetitive beats. The criminal justice bill prohibited the the broadcasting of repetitive beats in a public... Yeah, it was music. uh, Basically, they were trying to outlaw raves, but how do you do that without outlawing kind of, you know folk bands playing in in the, the village fair or whatever mm-hmm. so they they i think the piece of legislation said something like music characterized by repetitive beats right so they produced something which had you know no which repetitive, had no repetitive beats, beats you know <laughs> and the rest of their career was born you know? <laughs> exactly um so but that's not that's not direct action that's a a knowing wink you know that's it's a subtweet basically i mean because what i'm thinking of is is when you hear a song like, I don't know, John Lennon's Give Peace a Chance, mm. there's a very direct um, message. They're singing it. They've got, they've got very direct lyrics. And it's kind of easy to see how that might affect someone. I'm not sure the same thing happens if if with electronic music necessarily. I'm not sure if uh, Perk's exit will make people think in this manner. I guess the question is, is it going to convince anybody that's 
that's not already convinced. But also, I mean, Brexit's such a tricky one because it's kind of, it's a done deal, right? I mean, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're we're dealing with these things like Trump again. He he won, you know. And so <laughs> yeah. now the the whole idea of the resistance is like, wh- where do you how how do we preserve the you know the rights and freedoms that that we believe in under a repressive regime? But but let let me put it to you this way: say you're um, a music producer living in the US, um, do you ignore what's happening or do you make music um, that acknowledges it in some way? I don't just mean the US, uh, Britain's got its own yeah, problems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what wh- what do you do? Because it seems like you can't just hide your head in the sand, but then how do you address it? What do you do? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe you're, maybe you're just you know, raise money for good cause, you know, maybe you're throwing, throwing parties, playing the music you always play, but, um, you know, you're raising money for organizations that need the money. Um, I mean, there's politics in everything we do. And certainly you can talk about the emancipatory politics of, of dance music or club culture. Um, you know, it's roots in gay, lesbian subcultures and, you know, black Latino subcultures. Um, you, you, you pay you pay tribute to those roots you you try to diversify dance music culture as best you can i mean you you kind of you live up to dance music's utopian potential as best you can um as a counter example to trump's narrow-minded um cruel bullying world of of white power i mean that's one possible, you know, you create a refuge, a safe space. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you need lyrics saying Trump is bad. Brexit was a bad (laughs) idea, you know, to get that point home. Um, survival is, is, is kind of a political statement in itself. But do, do you think people will do that? I mean, do you think we'll actually see, you know, electronic music, which does, blatantly make the message that, that does have somebody saying something that does have people going like you know trump is a bully or, or i mean whatever. i kind of hope we don't i think that's I, I think we all know that you know i don't think that's going to change anybody's but, but mind do we <laughs> do we i mean you, you and i do but i i don't know i mean like how many people listen to ele- ele- electronic music i mean somebody who was just saying depeche mode are the sound of the all right you know yeah that's but, then, but then depeche mode said excuse me no we're not i mean i don't think any depeche mode fan thinks that i don't i grew up listening to punk which is supposedly the super political but punk didn't really you know i mean you know what like bronski beat sort of radicalized me i remember buying a bronski beat cassette in london when i was i think 14 years old i took a trip to london with my parents and i bought bronski beat at hmv and it was the age of consent and the fold out in the cassette talked about the differing ages of consent for uh straight people and gay people across yeah. Europe. And I remember seeing that and, and for gay people, it was much older than straight people. And I was like, wow, that's really messed up. That's like, mm. that's not fair. That's, that's unequal treatment. And, and it was like, and that actually like in my 14 year old brain, like a little light bulb went on. Yeah. You know? So that to me was an example of kind of politics and music that, that had, that worked in some sense. So that's exit by perk. Sorry. We've talked a lot about <laughs> politics. Perk, It's a great album. Um, and um, this is a great track. We are 
so what's your recommendation? So I want to talk about, um, it's more of an album than a track in general, but I think we talked about it at the beginning of the podcast. The artist is named Coton, K-H-O-T-I-N, from Vancouver, British Columbia, if I'm not mistaken. Um, has done a lot of stuff for the 1080p label. This new album is called New Tab. Um, I think it's going to be a cassette, and I, I'm assuming it'll be on Bandcamp as well. Um, self-released, if I'm not mistaken. Mostly it's ambient. It's um, kind of like the Werco S ambient album. Um, it's it's very sort of watery and meandering and uh, in a good way. And, you know, like it's super easy to just like put on and bliss out to. Uh, but then the last couple tracks get into this really amazing kind of early mid 90s IDM sort of vibe um one of them's got these like slow break beats that are almost like ltj bookham or something like that um one of them is is like very reflex um rns apollo kind of vibes and uh it's really well done and it's very very evocative of of that particular uh idm sound and and i love it we were just listening in here and i was bouncing up and down i think it's it's great something it sounds a little bit Early warpish, yeah, yeah, bit, you totally. Know, LFO-ish, that kind of yeah, thing. Exactly. I think we we mentioned nightmares on wax. Uh, one of them is really like a sweet, sweet exorcist kind of sound, and it's yeah, it's just it's really well done, and and it has enough, um, just has enough spark to it to that it's not just like oh yeah, that's a good like early warp pastiche. I mean, it's 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 really f- great music in its own right. From someone who literally wasn't born when artificial intelligence came out. <laughs> Most likely. Uh, he so wasn't. He wasn't. He was born December the 13th, 1993, according to this website. Oh, my I have. goodness. <laughs> I wow. know, I know. <laughs> I mean, that's, but there's something really beautiful about that, no? That, like, yeah, yeah. That I, lo- I don't think anybody at the time would have thought that, you know, 24 years later, infants were going to be yeah, remaking this. If I'd have known, I'd have bought them on vinyl. I bought them on cassette. I've got <laughs> so many of these artificial, artificial intelligence albums on cassette somewhere. Yeah. And if I'd have just bought them. I did that with a lot of punk and goth. I bought it all on cassette, and now I'm kicking myself because I also don't have the cassettes anymore, which is too bad. Um, so, yeah, l- we're going to listen to uh, a song off this uh, Coton uh, album and, and pick it up. Which track? We're going to listen to Fever Loop off of, the, off of Coton's new tab. I think you're going to send us out after after that d- just depressing perk song. I mean, who wants to think about Brexit? That's just a it's just a bummer. You're <laughs> going to take us out on an up note, right? Sort of an up note, yeah. Certainly something very very different. I this is um, it's by a band called Candy Blaster, who I must confess I've never heard of before. Um, and uh, the uh, EP is called The Best of Obama Gold Wax. Um, and the track is The Ocean. And are, are you a fan of Echo and the Bunnymen? I love Echo and the Bunnymen. How would you feel about Echo and the Bunnymen over an electronic beat? You know, <laughs> I'm I'm less enthused Ooh. about that premise, but I love Echo and the Bunnymen. 
I was expecting more enthusiastic <laughs> reaction. Well, this is... Um, it, it, that's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like a big... Uh, not necessarily the singer sounds like Echo and the Bunnymen, but it's got that kind of very 80s melancholy sweeping indie vocal. Um, it's a kind of vocal that has nothing to do with sort of disco or... Um, funk or anything like that or any of the vocals you might normally kind of get in, in house music or whatever it sounds like an indie band like Echo and the Bunnymen um, but um, underneath it there's this sort of strolling house beat and electronics and it's a kind of track that you will either love it or hate it I think <laughs> and I love it I absolutely love it I think it's great it's really burrowed its way into my brain I can't stop listening to it um, it was apparently uh, shortlisted for John Talbot's DJ Kicks, um, but they didn't include it in the end uh, because of deadlines. All right, interesting. Okay, so Candy Blaster, stairs the Ocean Original Cut. Stars are crying, stairs of longing are yesterday's welcome. I gave my heart out to the ocean. I gave my heart out to. That's it for our show this week. It certainly is. We're sorry we were away for so long. We'll be back soon. And until then, uh, feel free to email us, linenoisepodcast at gmail.com. Get us on Twitter, uh, at linenoisepod. Um, go to our Facebook page, anything like that. Uh, thanks for listening, and viva IDM.